0: Namaste.
1: You must be Regine. I'm glad to meet you. Are you enjoying your time here?
2: Yes, I am.
1: What have you learned so far? (laughs) A lot. What question do you have? I have a lot of questions. What's the top one?
2: The top one? So the question is Why, when I'm so close to surrender, that's when everything is hitting me hard?
1: When you say everything, don't you mean your ego is hitting you hard? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Your ego doesn't want to die. When you surrender to God, the ego dissolves, it's gone. So the ego has a homeostatic mechanism that enables it to survive and for the ego, from its perspective, realizing God is a trauma, (laughs) it's a threat to its existence. So it's going to hit you with all it has to convince you, you don't want God, you don't want the infinite, you prefer the finite life of suffering. At least you're anchored in the familiar, you know your way around, you know, you, you don't want the unknown, right? The terror of the infinite void, which is what the ego will tell you it is. It isn't that, it's a blissful, luminous presence and uh, intelligence and power. But the ego will try to convince you that it's scary and that it will leave you defenseless. Right? And so, you have to decide, is the ego right? Or is it an obsolete way of looking at reality that was needed, perhaps, in the past in growing up in an adverse situation? But now is actually an obstacle to your true empowerment. That's what you're going to have to determine consciously and then make a wholehearted decision which one you want. Because it's your choice entirely but you are divided between who you really are and who you think you are. And so who you think you are, your mind has been usurped by this egoic operating system that is using incorrect principles of reality in order to judge what you ought to do. And as long as an inaccurate calibration of your mind remains in place, you won't be able to figure out anything. This is why the mind must be silenced, why meditation is essential. In the silence, then the wisdom of your heart will become accessible. And your heart knows a lot more than your ego does. And by listening to your heart, you will free yourself from the ego and find that supreme love that answers all questions.
3: Mm-hmm. Would you say listening to your heart is equivalent of the heart and the soul of
1: those? Yes, but I would say the heart even goes deeper than the soul. The heart starts at the soul, but once the heart is really opened, it's open to the love of God. And that love creates a, a connection that leads to union with God. So then it takes the consciousness beyond the soul into the pure spirit. So love is the portal and the the magnetic power that enables you to rise beyond the soul level. But it is necessary to appear at the soul level so you can choose soul over ego. And then the soul's love of that which is beyond itself will dissolve the soul's own uh, identity as different from God through the blissful union of love. So, the floor is open if anyone else has any questions or comments. But especially visitors, if there's anything you have been uh, learning in classes that have not been clear, or that you disagree with, or that you want to to have more talk about, yes.
3: Are there past traumas that can block that access to? your heart or
1: listening to your heart? Oh yes, absolutely are. That's why we give these classes, so you'll know what they are, and you'll be able to override the blocks that you put in place to defend yourself against the traumas happening again. Okay, That's basically all the ego is, is a set of interlocking defense mechanisms to make sure your heart never opens that override comes from acknowledging that? It comes from the soul level of consciousness that has the power to change the ego's uh, directives. can't happen from within the ego because it's already set. So the ego itself has no free will, but the soul has the potential of free will if it's awakened to change the ego and its processing and then ultimately dissolve it into God-consciousness. And the ego will fight it because the ego doesn't want to open its heart. And it's also afraid it'll open its heart to the wrong other and, and not to God because at the ego level there is no distinction or accurate discernment between desire and love. The ego contaminates one's perceptions and creates what's called infatuation that is actually a, uh, a distorted and disguised form of uh, trying to get various needs met that aren't love under the, uh, the uh, illusion that it's love, but it's basically a, uh, an act of projecting one's, uh, one's fantasy object onto another and that's always a very temporary and fragile state and then once the other stops agreeing to hold up that fantasy for you then you're dealing with a situation that you hadn't bargained for or at least not consciously and uh, the agreement made by two subconscious levels of an ego uh, end up in a, a very different kind of relationship that will no longer be called love by either party so this is the, the problem of, uh, of, of allowing desire to rule your life. And it always comes with a backlash of fear, anger, bitterness, disappointment, all of those things. Because the ego lives in an a illusory world of uh, fantasies and cannot see what reality really is this can only come from a much higher and more nuanced level of perception.
2: Yeah? In the guided meditation you mentioned the emotional body mm-hmm. and I, it's just not a, a concept that I've heard that much I wonder if you could explain yeah, that. Yeah,
1: it's part of the manomaya kosha, but it is also it's where the manomaya kosha and the pranamaya kosha intersect. Okay, so there's there's a specific aspect of the mental body that is in charge of the affects that are carried along with thoughts and that express themselves as pranic deployments in the body. So you'll feel it in the body, not in the mind. Mm -hmm. But it's actually uh, in that mid-range of of the mental body's uh, projection of the, um, let's say, the suffering aspect of the thoughts that then is felt as an energy, and that energy we could call the emotional body. But it's that aspect of prana that contains those negativities that then create symptoms in the body.
2: That's very helpful because I know sometimes that it's so difficult to, even, even if I can talk myself out of feeling something or, or let's say um, I understand rationally, it is not so. whatever the mind is creating as fear, the it's felt in the body in mm-hmm. some sort of right. anxious yeah. symptom. Right. You know, and uh, it's been I've been noticing it a lot a lot lately. This last few weeks, feeling it that rooted into the body, as kind of like a generalized feeling of feeling mm-hmm. of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I've been kind of wondering how do I how yeah. do I understand what
1: that is. Right. Well, first see it as an emotional body, not a physical body symptom. Mm-hmm. So that then you can recognize that it is the corollary or correlate of the thoughts in the mental body that are still repressed. Mm-hmm. And because the thoughts are repressed, it has to become emotions right? And, and be felt in the body rather than in the mind. So if you're willing to bear it, you ask that the energy be transferred up into the mind, and the third eye will recognize what it's about. And if there's enough strength to let go of an old pattern and, and enough uh, readiness to decide, right, once and for all, I'm done with that, uh, that behavior or that uh, projection, uh, then uh, the, the pranic body, the emotional body will calm down and the natural state of peace will return. Yes, sir.
3: Um, You recently uh, changed the theme of the upcoming meditation intensive in September. (laughs) The basis of white magic. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask um, why you had chosen to do that at this time, Mm. and also what is white magic. Mm.
1: Okay. This is a very deep and nuanced subject, right? Which is why a whole retreat is necessary, and I can't give you a very brief answer that really gets to the depths of it, or we'll be here all night just on this one question. But the original capacities of the human being in our purest state of consciousness before the fall, in that lost golden age, that's now a legend or a myth, but is in fact a reality, uh, we were avatars, manifestations of that supreme power of God that made us also total masters over magic. Because magic, the same word "mahia" is maya, it's the illusion. But when you are master over the illusion, you can use the illusion to bring great joy. You can manifest what you you want. Ah, you want a a milkshake in the palm of your hand? I don't think you will in the golden (laughs) age, but whatever it is you want, you've got a drink. You know, it's like on Star Trek, they have those machines that do it. But in uh, Satyuga, we do it just with our minds. And that's why we can create flying machines and uh, have all kinds of uh, technological capacities that don't come from needing computers and other modern technological apparatus because it's all done totally w- within consciousness itself. But these, uh, these powers are, are present. And once the fall happened then uh, in the especially after the copper age uh, the the ancient civilizations that were not at the level of satyuga but were from our perspective filled with tremendous wisdom and power that we no longer have like ancient egypt Atlantis, Lemuria, places like that, Hyperborea, that are again now mostly shrouded in mythical, mysterious, distorted understanding. But these uh, much higher civilizations were the last civilizations to be able to use magic in a legitimate way that was truly white magic because there were still priests, shamans, uh, beings of of great uh, integrity and light, who were the the pillars of those civilizations and the the leaders, who were able to use those powers for good without being corrupted. Once we entered into Kali Yuga, every ego became corruptible, including shamans and including yogis, including. Uh, Brahmins, priests, etc., of, who were uh, vowed to be pure and uncorruptible, but could not keep their vows. Just that power uh, was lost. <clears throat> and so in that time period, it became uh, a, uh, one of the, the laws of the Dharma that yogis should not practice magic. Okay. Now, there were those who broke away from that and took the, what, the Vama Marga, the left-hand path, and went into magic. And this is part of what Tantra became about and various other esoteric, uh, let's say, uh, shoots of the, of the yogic mainstream. But uh, because the magic that was used was used in order to bring about results that favored the magician or the magician's client or for whomever the, the, the magus was working, uh, it led to more negative karma. And it became a temptation that could cause a yogi to deviate from the goal of liberation from the cycle of birth and death into, you know, claiming the power of uh, of some uh, supernormal capacity, including longevity, but that would ultimately then lead to a worse downfall and not to liberation. So it was not, and is not, advisable for anyone to use those powers so long as they are in a corruptible state. Okay. Having said that, we are now at the end of Kali Yuga. And at this time at the end of Kali Yuga and the, the period just before the planet enters the next singularity and the portal to a new cycle of time, now it becomes important for the return of the magi and those magical capacities in order to be able to traverse what we must face in the downfall of civilization that's imminent and in the, uh, in the dealing with the planetary ruins of a Mad Max level of uh, chaos that we will have to pass through in which those magical powers will become essential. But they are only activatable Once you have transcended the ego, the ego will not be able to use the power of white magic. So there's a fail-safe protection in this. But if we reach that avataric level prior to the end of the the yuga and the kalpa, then those powers will enable us to pass through into the next uh, cycle or to transcend the cycle, but to be able to offer a protective energy field to those who are to be the, let's say, founding inhabitants of the next Satyuga. So there will be a kind of angelic role, even if one has left the body, that will enable the the use of those powers uh, in a non-local space to uh, provide protection and, and divine assistance to those who require it and are, have, have earned that right. So there is, a, there is a lot that needs to be done and the methods of knowing how to do them is being given again, that wisdom is returning. But again, it will only be uh, useful to so those who have uh, purified the soul, made the body into a temple of God, and can then use that knowledge as a, uh, a resource uh, for guardianship of the, uh, let's say, the colony of, uh, of those who are becoming avatars and angels in, in the physical plane in order to be able to complete their development and, uh, and be undisturbed by the chaotic vibrational field that will be surrounding them. And, uh, and this knowledge, therefore, will be given to whomever in the world has reached the level of consciousness that they are able to access it. So, The basis of white magic, and why this retreat is called that, is that we must first establish the foundation upon which those magical understandings and powers are given, and then the the actual technical development of them can proceed. So the basis is not the basics. It's actually the most advanced level because you have to have achieved liberation and then bring the, the power that comes with that and the authority into uh, a form where it, is, uh, it morphs into mastery. So this has to happen within an ethical context and within a context of very strict self-regulation of consciousness that must never fall below a certain level. If it does, then uh, all that has been gained will be drained away. And so this is why the idea in alchemy of the uh, hermetically sealed vessel is so important. There must be no leakage of energy through desire or fear. And, and one must never touch the earth plane. One must remain in the light. The body-mind will function through the ray that connects the, the mind via the pineal gland and the jyotibindu, the light that shines there from the Atman. But the Atman remains transcendent of the holographic field and uh, and must never again enter into it in the form of any egoic identity, even an exalted identity. Uh, There must be a complete union with the source, and only from there can the magic be, uh, let's say, manifested and transmitted. So I hope that's helpful. This is the time, it's probably the last opportunity before the world gets too chaotic to be able to develop these uh, understandings and practices and, uh, and to have the luxury of, uh, of being able to work together to enhance the powers of our consciousness to prepare for that final stage of what is about to happen on this planet and to be able to uh, meet the forces of darkness with the power of light in its fully transcendent and invincible form so that victory will be attained by the forces who are loyal to God. And it must be understood at the highest level, not transformed into some jihadic kind of parody of itself. And it must remain very clear that we're talking about love and wisdom in a context of non-violence and non-identification with a body and non-local consciousness. Unless it's within that paradigm, it will be distorted. Does that help to give the understanding of why we're doing a retreat like this? It's essential for those who are ready and they will know if they are called to participate in something like this. Very few will be able to do that.
2: Um, can you talk from a historical perspective how light magic has been used?
1: How it has been used?
2: Yes, um, such as, I mean, this is just another cycle in time. Um, the universe has been through Kali Yuga before. Yeah. Just wondering where this knowledge comes from. It has to, the basis has to have been used before. Like you talked
1: about. It's, it's used at this time in every cycle, at the very end of Kali Yuga. Uh, That knowledge returns from the source and is given again. But there's no through line of the use of that in a historical sense. What has been called white magic is not the real thing. So it's something new and unprecedented. But yes, you're right, it happens every cycle. In the same way that at a certain moment in the life of the caterpillar it goes into the cocoon and it becomes a butterfly and that's magic. Right? But the caterpillar couldn't have done it any earlier and it didn't know anything about it. And it learns it after it's in the cocoon and dissolving into its next metamorphic form. Right, So in a sense, one of the aspects of magic is shape-shifting. And that's what we are undergoing now. And this is why transmutation is one of the aspects of the basis of white magic.
0: Okay.
2: I was thinking of aliens, we, um, in the lecture last night you talked about transmutation and uh, during that discussion I was talking to my group about how um, the meaning, what that meaning means to me, the word, mm-hmm. and I was thinking um, to transmutate means to change, to reconfigure it, essentially the shape of, and I was thinking I wonder what your um, take on other life-form is, if there is, I don't know, I haven't fully processed that thought, but if we will ever um, meet with other life-form or change into another life-form.
1: There are indeed other, you mean intelligent life-forms, obviously nature has infinite life-forms, so yes, indeed, there are other intelligences, and they may well show themselves and become uh, very, uh, let's say, collegial with those who are white magicians. So this will also change the nature of uh, who we attract as allies in this great work. But I think it's premature to talk about that because it will not be able to be understood accurately and then it tends to lead to all kinds of paranoid fantasies. So when the moment comes to bring that subject into fullness, we'll do that.
2: So, um, sometimes I'll have, like, some information that will come to me, but I can't differentiate if it's coming from the ego or from the source. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it will create anxiety because it's just, the information is just out of the norm. Mm -hmm. So how can I make the difference? if it's from the
1: light or the ego? First of all, you can't fully be able to discern or even receive accurately the information that comes from the highest source beyond the ego until you are free of ego yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's why that's the first stage of all spiritual development. You have to enter into soul consciousness. The soul will no longer have a problem, because the ego, it will have transcended that level of distortion. But as long as there's an ego there, I wouldn't trust any download and I would confirm it with someone who is more advanced on the path. Uh, But it may well be that you do get some accurate information. The question is, can you discern what it is, as you say? If it is uh, information that makes you more able to love, more peaceful, more accepting of yourself as a divine being, and feel closer to that source of all that is, and wanting to serve that rather than serving the ego's desires and demands and all of that, then it is a true message, if it's a message that tells you to be violent, or to run away, or to do something that, is, uh, uh, that goes against the integrity of your being, then it's a false message. Okay, So, uh, on, just on the basis of the principles of Dharma, you, you can know that you'll never get a message from God that tells you to do something that's a sin. So although there, there you may get a message that tells you to do something that might look to some others as not being accurate but it will be accurate from that perspective. But you won't have any doubt and you won't, it, it won't uh, be something that could be accomplished at the ego level. The message will always be something that only the soul in mastery of the ego can do because it requires a sacrifice of ego. Nearly every message that comes from that source requires that sacrifice in order to, to be fulfilled. Okay? Because it, that's the intention of the will of God, is that we become manifestations of God. Right? That we, be, we let go of the differential and vibrational frequency between ego and God, and, and we rise to that level and then bring that into the body. So any message that goes against that would not be accurate. You, you
2: just mentioned um, that we must never touch the earth plane. I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that.
1: You see, we are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The pure spirit manifests through a body, but is not a body. It, spirit is the opposite of matter, right? Matter is a very densified, illusory construct that's imagined by that aspect of consciousness that uh, has fallen uh, from its understanding that this is a dream and that God is the dreamer of that dream. And to... To be in a, a body that one considers as material and feels as that means that one has fallen from the plane of light and of the dream into a belief, a, a, a false belief that this is reality as a standalone physical phenomenon. And once you have entered into that field in which this feels like a material world you will lose your access to the Holy Spirit that you really are because you will have chosen to identify as a material bodily being. And then you're cut off from the the power and the source of your being. So we yogis must remain in the plane of transcendent spirit and recognize this as a dream and be awakened in the dream, which means you are not identified with that body or with any body or any form, even a very subtle form. And in that formless consciousness, therefore, are able to realize a unity with all that appears in the dream. And therefore there is no duality any longer. And no fear, no desire, no uh, inaccuracy, there is um, a complete capacity for wisdom. You know, in the legal systems of the world, a judge must recuse himself or herself if there's any conflict of interest, right? They cannot hear a case in which they, who somebody on one side is their brother-in-law or who they owe money to or they have stock in their company or whatever, right? If there's any conflict in which they could have a distortion as to who's right or wrong, they can't be a judge. So, the part of the role that we are taking is to be able to judge, to act as those who are authorized to make judgments uh, that are in accord with the will of God. But only if we are at that level will we be able to do that. Otherwise, ego judgments are totally inaccurate and harmful. But we have to be very discerning and to do that we have to be in the plane of pure spirit. We cannot touch body consciousness and that means we cannot uh, believe in any identification with a physical form or have any desire for such. Total love must be given to the one beloved that is the pure incorporeal non-objectifiable supreme being and we must merge into that not into the holographic illusion we must extract ourselves from the illusion and return to the real so that must be practiced now consistently so there's no trace of a sanskara to materialize our consciousness as a physical being yeah? understand? Okay. So, that means silence and uh, a blissful presence that is completely indifferent to what happens on this plane. Indifferent in the sense of not having any desire or fear because you know we're in the hands of God and everything will work out perfectly. So there'll be no worries, no anxiety, no depression, right? no bipolarity. Uh, there will be total stability of consciousness and uh, an accession of the knowledge that enables us to be master of every situation and every moment as it arises but without uh, needing to figure things out using the lower mind. Even though the lower mind will still have its functions in terms of the planning that goes on at an administrative level for the community, etc. But the consciousness will be already indifferent to that and detached. And it will happen spontaneously, but, but without any, uh, let's say, uh, fall into a, uh, an identification with the mind that is carrying out those obligatory uh, aspects of service that require thinking, but the real capacity of consciousness remains completely in silence, and stillness, and bliss, unchanging. It's a it's a very subtle practice, but that's what the sadhana now has to consist in.
3: Bhakti was asking about uh, the emotional body
2: mm-hmm.
3: <clears throat> and last few days I've been sensing tremendous uh, darkness that was just permeating uh, my body and uh, at uh, one point yesterday morning Maharaji Vama said uh, get in touch with your feelings and uh, I had been sensing that I was getting in touch with my feelings and those feelings were so very dark and negative going straight back to the very beginning, mm-hmm. that initial trauma yes. that, and I could see that emotion, the emotional body mm-hmm. that, that we were discussing permeating every facet of my life uh, mm-hmm. all of the, the, the traumas, mm-hmm. the, the uh, development of, of the ego And uh, my thought was, if I get in touch with my feelings, it will be the day I die.
1: No. Yeah, it'll be the day your ego dies.
3: Well, it's one or the other. (laughs) But the feeling Mm -hmm. was, if I reach there, because uh, Mm. the the daily conscious ego mind is trying to do everything it can to avoid uh, connection with that feeling. Of course. And repressing uh, it. And, it. Yeah. and there was this time in which it was being perceived yeah. uh, for the first time. That's great. It was That's a breakthrough. Terrify- terrifying.
1: Yeah. You, you have to contain that terror. Okay? When you can turn that terror into bliss, ego will die. You won't. But the, uh, the the supreme power will be given you as a result of that attainment, okay? But it will require the absolute faith in God and surrender in order to bring the light into that black hole of torment and allow it to die, to be dissolved totally. So you've ha- in order to survive that original terror of not being wanted to be alive you had to to totally suppress it and never feel it, but then it comes back to you in the form of karma. Uh, But you could handle that, and you can handle bodily symptoms, but you couldn't handle that terror of dying as a baby, probably even before birth. Uh, And you wanted to live, and so you have an insurmountable power that has enabled you to live through that, but at the price of being able to open your heart to love. And you had to have a Vulcan strategy in order to make it through. But now is the time when you must bring the light into the black hole and you have to go all the way into it and slay the demons of, of terror that are there and, uh, and bring that eternal light back to its true form. So yeah, you're very close to the ultimate breakthrough. But don't identify with this will be the day I die. No, the I that will die is the ego I. And the body will live and be filled with light instead of darkness. Okay.
3: Mm I was impacted last night by the uh, Graham Hancock. Mm-hmm. A little clip that we saw. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a question about uh, the, the, the time that Hermes, that this prophecy was given. Was that the beginning of Kali Yuga? Was that the end of Treti Yuga?
1: Yeah, it was actually at the beginning of uh, Greek civilization. You know, Pythagoras uh, studied at, uh, in Egypt and in uh, babylonia he studied with the zarathustrian magi as well as with the the last of the egyptian priests who uh, passed on some of that uh, knowledge of hermes uh, oh they didn't call it hermes it was thought right the the and they retranslated that in in the terms of greek mythology and called him hermes Uh, But the actual knowledge comes from much earlier, and what remained was the last traces of that as Egypt was falling and and was about to to have its civilization completely destroyed and then invaded, which happened soon after. So uh, the Greeks got a little bit of it, not that much, but they got a little bit through a few of the, the Greek uh, yogis, like Pythagoras, who on the basis of his studies in Egypt and, and with the, uh, the Zoroastrian Magi, then came back to, to Greece, actually to Italy, but was part of the Greek colonies, and established the first ashram there, and, uh, and, and began teaching. and and the teaching was about vibrational frequencies, which we now understand in terms of music and uh, mathematics and uh, all of the basis of uh, Western science and even of of much of artistic uh, understanding of aesthetics comes from Pythagoras. And the Pythagorean school was at some point united with the Orphic mystery school, and, uh, and there, were, there were Greeks who were members of both, and, and they, they became somewhat amalgamated in the Platonic school, and Plato was a student of both, and those, uh, those people also participated in the Eleusinian mysteries. In all three of these, there were aspects of this deeper Egyptian knowledge that were transmitted. And the, the Ellicinian mysteries included the, the use of uh, psychoactive plant medicines in order to reach different states of consciousness. So, but the, the goal was to then be able to do it without the help of the plant medicine. So that you used it only once. You had one shot at getting to it, and then you had to hold the note. So they didn't allow people to become dependent on that. But it was used. and. Uh, then the, uh, the the mysteries were rewritten in the form of the books we now have, as the the Emerald Tablet and uh, the various uh, books of the, the Hermetic teachings. And uh, and some of them came even later on. And and uh, and and most of the teachings, however, were not written down. They were passed on orally, because they were not supposed to be written down. But transmitted only to disciples who had earned the right to have that knowledge, because it included some white magic aspects that could be misused. And uh, so it was passed on and disseminated. It became the basis of Sufism and later Kabbalah and alchemy and all of the various uh, uh, esoteric traditions that had to avoid persecution by the church and and by other uh, by governments that were threatened by people who had this uh, knowledge, uh, if they could not uh, use them as their own consultants and uh, uh, servers, so there was a, uh, a need to uh, to keep this as secret as possible. But it was at that it was at that time in the transition. From the center of gravity of world civilization, from Egypt, passing the torch to to Greece, and the the fall of the Zoroastrian uh, world, we could say, and of the Aryan world in general, that then uh, uh, brought the uh, the need for that knowledge to be transmitted uh, to the West in a new form. So it was uh, it was retranscribed but a lot of the essential understandings were not included in those Hermetic texts. What we have is only a very uh, superficial grasp, let's say, of the initial modules of the teachings, not, not all of them by any means, but enough that, as in what Graham Hancock read in that piece, to, uh, to uh, transmit the prophecy that the world would fall into a final Kali Yuga in a state where everyone would be materialistic and non-believing and anti-spiritual and, uh, and completely perverted and, and, uh, and bestialized, etc. And, uh, and that world being not sustainable would end and, and a new world would be brought because at that time the power of God would return to earth at the very end and, and be able to uh, be Retranscribed in the hearts of those who were surrendered to God, so it is—it uh, is a prophecy that has uh, kept the light alive and the hope for that millennial coming that was always not real, didn't happen, uh, and people were disappointed time and time again. Uh, Christ didn't return, you know. Quetzalcoatl didn't return. Uh, Zoroaster didn't return, nobody returned. Uh, so they, eventually most people said, well, these are just myths and uh, false hope. Let's just you know, focus on science and technology and try to become Borgs of Trump transhumanist sort. Uh, of course, that isn't the way out. But uh, that, uh, that successive failure of the, the hope uh, in in the second coming or third or whatever number it was up to was going to uh, what was part of the reason why the, uh, the the best among humans eventually lost faith and uh, and, and entered the dark side because the uh, the hope seemed to be uh, a myth that only children could believe in, like Santa Claus or whatever else. and uh, so, it was it was cast aside and the result of that of course was uh, that the last embers of the light went out in Kali Yuga so now the fire has to be restored the eternal light must never be allowed to go out and so it it, uh, the flame returned just at at the moment that it was going out everywhere on the planet It, it was lit again in those lights of the great menorah that we're open to receiving that power again to bring the the luminescence and the the power of God back to our planet
2: Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could explain the difference between the subtle mind and the still mind you mentioned it in the teaching that we listened to yesterday Um, for some reason it ignites a, a, a desire, like a higher desire. Oh something I can like uh, maybe the words still seem so difficult, but like the, the desire to have suffra mind, I think, to be free from distortion, the emotions mahalakshmi, like desire for clarity, that seems more of a pull for me than still.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. It is an important stepping stone to stillness. So, yes, the subtle mind is that of the Buddhi at the Viveka point, right, to use our Kundalini map. And the subtle mind, when the Buddhi is awakened, is receiving inspiration from the the spirit, the still mind, or the that which is beyond mind, you could say, the source of mind but it is receiving it in a relatively undistorted way that enables one then to change the trajectory of one's behavior and override patterns of thinking and acting that are in the ego. So that subtle mind uh, enables you to understand everything in a much deeper way and therefore not have an egoic reaction to something. And when you're in the subtle mind, you never get angry. The subtle mind has a wonderful sense of humor because it sees God's uh, humor in everything and the hidden perfection and blessings even in the darkest curses and therefore is not upset or destabilized by anything that happens and can know how to respond accurately. So the subtle mind is an essential um, tool that we have to live in to be able to uh, deal with reality accurately, or what passes for reality, this plane, and pass the tests that we will face in this plane that the gross mind will not be able to pass, because the, the gross mind of the ego is uh, is under the influence of irresistible urges and reflex uh, actions and affects that it's not able to think about first. There'll be a fight-or-flight reaction or a, a depressive reaction or just an angry outburst or a meltdown, and one won't be able to consider, you know, was that a good idea or not? It just happens. So if we want mastery and self-control, we have to be in the subtle mind. And once that has become stabilized, then we will always be able to govern the, the, the ego and it will no longer uh, operate outside of the jurisdiction of the Dharma. It will, it, will be, it will come under control of the higher understanding and then everything will go smoothly from there on. And the more the subtle mind tunes into the stillness in meditation, the more it attains the stillness. And the subtle mind itself morphs into the mind of God. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Hermes is the name of a, a Greek god. Correct. Who is um, Hermes Trismegistus?
1: Yeah, that's the one who is the written in these uh, texts that came from Egypt. And it's the, in Egypt the god thought, from whom I think derives the word thought, because he was the, the god that represents intelligence. And uh, it, is, it is intelligence that enables us to conquer Maya. You can't do it from a state of stupidity. But it's the intelligence of the heart, not just of the logical mind. And so it is, it is that power that opens the eye of Horus, the third eye, that enables one to see uh, the underlying structures of reality that the ego can't see because it stays only at the level of seeing the imaginary images, figures that it desires or hates or whatever, but it's, it, it stays in the level of the image and doesn't get to the underlying energy, intention, and uh, teleological destiny of all of the vectors of force that are in action in a particular plane. But that that mind, the subtle mind, which is the mind of Hermes, you could say, is able to perceive all of that and not get in the way of how it is meant to develop and unfold. Right? The ego jumps in and gets in the way of a process that was fine, but that, that the ego, in trying to fix what ain't broke, will end up breaking it. And that's what karma is really about. So most of what we need to do when, once we have the third eye open is not do anything. Don't interrupt. Don't get in the way of it. Even if something looks disastrous, It had to happen that way, and yeah, there may be something that needs to be done in in some immediate sense of assistance, but minimalist in order to let things unfold out of their own uh, internal engrams of their divine nature that uh, needed a a traumatic event to break open a shell so that something uh, could appear that would otherwise never... uh, be able to manifest. So we have to to subtly understand uh, uh, that, that the less we do, the more effective we are, even though that doesn't apply necessarily to the body and to the activities that the body must undergo as part of its service. But the consciousness must remain disidentified from the body and be in that state where it's dealing with the, the subtle levels in which all of us are connected already as a super-organism, even if we're not aware of it at a conscious level. And that uh, allows what must happen an opening, a space, in which it can be uh, appreciated and allowed to unfold without disturbance. Okay. So, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but, uh, but that's Hermes Trismegistus, the three majesties, right? They, they refer to the same as the idea of Shiva as the uh, Tree Darshi and the Tree Loki not, right? The lord of the three worlds and the three times. So, uh, one can see past, present, and future, and therefore the teleological destination of what is unfolding, but also the vertical levels uh, between the the hologram and the subtle mind that can guide it with more accuracy and the 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 spirit that's dreaming it. It also is able to move from the periphery and uh, the chronos time into kairos time which is also the dream time, the aboriginal dream time and move into the ion, that that changeless, timeless place, which is then able to shift the clock of of what happens in the holographic periphery to the moment uh, that is decisive in the shift from Kali Yuga to Sat Yuga. So it's when you're in the very center that the, the clock can strike 12, as it were. And, uh, and that moment will be eternally present so that there is time to pass through from one yuga into the next. So it's the key to uh, be able to, uh, to shape shift by becoming totally without shape. And and shift consciousness from one cycle of time into the next.
2: Mm -hmm. I have a question on the minimal. um, What did you say? Minimal. uh, Reaction. Reaction, yes. Mm -hmm. Because um, that's not just towards others, it's towards oneself and how, Mm -hmm. when things come up, how to react.
1: So you, you don't react.
2: Don't react, <laughs> yes. You see? How, what to say is right.
1: Well, does. when you say things come up, what you really mean is an emotion comes up, uh-huh. right? Like I'm angry, frustrated, and, right, and I want to react and tell somebody that they're doing the wrong thing and get out of my way or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when those things come up, they, they need to be looked at very carefully and, and never allowed to be acted out because that will create a karmic glitch, if you do. But you'll learn from the karmic glitch if it happens. So even then, the inaccuracy is accurate. But uh, the more you can uh, not have any reaction to the event, you will. the more you'll be able to see why it had to happen and what you were meant to learn from it. And by learning it instantly, without resistance and without projection, one gets to the next level. So every moment is part of the shakti test system, all right? And we are being tested in our understanding about of how to respond to the glitches in reality, to things that we don't like, and uh, to see why we don't like them and what's inaccuracy in our dislike rather than in the thing that happens. And if we can shift our locus of attention From the outer world to the inner, that's the moving from ego to soul. And when the soul has purified everything it doesn't like about itself and its own ego, then the world will no longer contain events that make you dislike what's happening. Because the world is your dream, but the dream includes those aspects of yourself that you've rejected, self as an egoic entity, that have been uh, projected into the other that you cannot like or what they do you cannot like but uh, that has to be purified so that there is unconditional love for everyone and everything regardless of how they treat you and to be able to deal with it with a sense of humor and a recognition of uh, whatever is karmically accurate that doesn't look accurate in terms of how it's appearing in the moment but it can be seen as the Darshi. When you know the full past and the full future of the unfolding of this event, it looks very different than how it will look in the moment to the ego. And then you'll never have meltdowns or tantrums or anything because uh, you'll be able to flow with everything, seeing its perfection.
2: Even if you're saying it's inaccurate, in the bigger sense...
1: Yeah, even if it's inaccurate, it's accurate because it had to happen. So, nothing happens that doesn't have to happen. Now, how you are to respond to that, the more you can respond from the, the higher mind, the subtle mind, then uh, the more that you will be able to, uh, to shift what happens into uh, a, a kind of world that, 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 is, uh, that all interactions are loving, <coughs> and, uh, and, and there, those kinds of glitches don't happen anymore. But to do that, we have to not touch the earth as material beings again. We have to be as spirit, and then whatever happens will be coordinated by the one intelligence that makes everything manifest. As long as we live in a world of multiple intelligences, each one who is out for their own good, then the world is just a war of all against all. That's the way it is at the ego level of consciousness. And you'll never have a community, you'll never have a world at peace, you'll never have a cosmos at peace if you're at that level of consciousness. So if you want peace, in your own heart and mind and with others and with the cosmos and with God, that's the price we have to pay. And and it's a, a letting go of our preferences in order to surrender to God's preference. And then once the will of God is established, we'll see that it was actually the best uh, way for everything to unfold. So there's it requires a lot of trust. And as you know, most people have had their trust destroyed by traumatic childhoods, and so it, it becomes a major challenge to be able to put this into action. So I understand that it takes a lot of time before one has the subtlety of realizing the wisdom of this approach to day-to-day life.
2: Yeah? Um. So I came here because um, I was under the understanding that there was a non-dogmatic approach
1: here. Yeah, talk a little louder.
2: I, I came here because I was under the understanding and appreciation that there was a non-dogmatic approach to mm-hmm. um, the intelligence mm-hmm. of what's happening here, and um, I have absolutely no problem with it. I'm just more curious with um, the, the mention of God. Yeah. All
1: mm-hmm.
2: the time. And, and
1: what Is that dogmatic to you? What what would be your, let me ask you, what would be your final term of ultimate reality? What's your preference? Um,
2: The universe, I don't know.
1: But isn't there an intelligence that created the universe? Well, what's your word for that?
2: But I don't know if there was an intelligence um, or a combination
1: of... Where would the combination come from? I really don't. Doesn't there have to be unity in the origin? In any case, you can call it whatever you want, and if you want to call it the universe, that's fine. I often will use the term Buddha mind, Cosmic mind, mind nature, Christ consciousness, Allah, I don't care what you use, the Tao, Wuji. I'm happy with any of those terms, but in the West, the term God, it means the same as all of those. If you understand it in a non dogmatic and non imaginary sense of a guy in a cloud with a beard and all of that, that's not what is meant by that term. But it means the ultimate level of intelligence that is responsible for the unfolding of what happens here. And there is a dreamer of this dream. It is a dream. And there is an intelligence behind it. And when you are in touch with that intelligence, then you know the truth and you're able to be fully empowered. So it's not a matter of belief or dogma. It's a matter of scientifically experimenting with this and discovering that intelligence. In fact, you're right that there is a combination. This is what Jung meant by the archetypal realm, in the sense that there are a number of beings who download their own inflection of that supreme intelligence. And the first shift, the first, let's say, duality in India would be called that of Shiva and Shakti, or the god and the goddess, right? They are actually one whole, but it's true that there's a divine feminine and a divine masculine and these are two inflections of the one power that actually create some of the electromagnetic energy because of the love of these two poles. And, and that these get then expressed in a microcosmic way, even at the ego level, that leads to falling in love and, and the energies of desire that manifest between people. Not necessarily anatomically men and women anymore, because it's more it's a, a, uh, an intellectual position, let's say, of yin and yang. It's, it has nothing to do with body. But these two polarities are are still derivative of the one intelligence. And then uh, there is a greater uh, level of subsets of, of archetypal manifestations of these forces. But if you want to get to the highest level and unify all of those forces within yourself, microcosmically, in order to be in resonance with it at the macrocosmic level, it requires you to reach that level of your own consciousness in which you are not identified as a particular being. The real dogma that has to be overcome is the dogma that believes in the reality of the ego. The ego is a fiction. And once that fictional narrative has been jettisoned, then the higher consciousness will come. And, and uh, you'll understand everything from within. You won't need to be here or listen to me or... Uh, any of that, and uh, you will get everything from within. But do the experiment and discover who you really are when the fictional narrative and the identification with body are completely gone. Okay, well, we're over time, but uh, has this been useful to people? Okay, I'm glad. We will continue the conversation. In as non dogmatic a way as we can, uh, and uh, hopefully with not only open minds but open hearts to realizing the power of love to heal all wounds. Namaste. Namaste.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunya Murti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats,